You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. guest today has only one deficiency is that her books are so good that my highlighters run out. They're so interesting to read. They're bite-sized morsels of wisdom and humor. And um, I'm so delighted today to introduce my guest, Reggie Harslinger. She could comfortably fill 52 weeks of this show if she wanted to because she is outstanding. So what is she is, is she is a teacher. She's at Harvard. She's an MBA school. She was the first female tenured professor there. She's been the first female, in fact, on many Fortune 100 boards. And um, she teaches healthcare. And she teaches healthcare economics. And she has been in hundreds of closed meetings talking about the healthcare future over the last 50 years. And uh, that'll be 50 years she's been at Harvard um, next year. Um, she sat on dozens of boards of the bigs we talked about all the time. And she's authored many books that are all outstanding and prescient. They're predicting the future very accurately. And she's coming out with another one this year about innovation in healthcare. So, uh, Reggie, I am so excited to have you on this show. You have no idea. Ron, I'm so excited to be here. And I'd like to talk to you every day. <laughs> Thank you. You're invited to be my guest host if you just uh, have the time. I know you don't, but if you're... you're uh, well, so I have a million questions for you that we can't possibly achieve in one show, but we'll do our best. Um, you have inoculated thousands of Harvard MBAs that are now probably working at a lot of these big systems with your brand of wisdom and common sense. Do you think that there is some of that um, Herslingerism out there working in the field? Well, it's interesting, Ron. Very few of my students work in big systems. Very few of my students work with big companies. Most of my students work with startups because the courses I teach are on innovating in healthcare. And uh, the thesis of the courses is healthcare is terrific, terrific docs, science. Oh my God, look at what's gone on with COVID off the scale, great resources, but it's a mess. And that the answer is not big, the answer is small. The answer is innovative companies, startups or mid-cap companies, uh, whether for-profit or non-profit that have great ideas about how to innovate healthcare. So you, you have not only written books, but you probably serve on a lot of these boards and advise these young companies. Who are the companies you see that are really making a huge difference innovating healthcare on a, sort of a macroeconomic level? Because you can patchwork the fix, you can fix this problem or that issue, but to, to take care of really a holistic approach, who, who, who is out there really doing a great job in your opinion? 
Uh, well, of course, the technology companies are extraordinary. So the Pfizer mRNA drug came from a partnership with a startup German company, and Moderna's really startup, even though it's worth $26 billion, it, uh, it is a startup. And many of the other great technology companies in the COVID fight, whether they're diagnostic or therapeutic, or the vaccines that I just discussed, they're really startups. But you don't want to hear about that. I think you want to hear about, tell me if I'm wrong, about companies that are doing well in the delivery system. And I think there are two of them. One is the movement toward a more consumer-centered care, whether it's retail medical centers or freestanding urgent care centers or freestanding emergency care centers, uh, whether it's the hospital to home movement, all of that is uh, a movement that puts more and more power in the hands of the patients and of the physicians who deliver that care. Uh, the second part that I think is very exciting is uh, telemedicine. Now, as you know, telemedicine has been around like forever and COVID takes a crisis. So COVID came along and they finally changed the very restrictive coverage and payment that had strangled telemedicine. So I think that's very important, but a side part of it that maybe people don't pay that much attention to are the sensors that enable a lot of telemedicine. So those Fitbits that used to be kind of silly with the 10,000 steps, those have become much more powerful. Uh, some of the smart watches can measure blood oxygen levels, which are very important for COVID, can do uh, okay kind of EKGs, which can at least detect an MI. Uh, the implantable centers, sensors are very important for diabetics. One of my students teamed up with a doc from MIT to invent a sensor for diabetics. And it's a mat that you step on and the mat measures the speed of your feet. And this mat can predict whether an ulcer is coming on. As you know, if you're diabetic and you get a foot ulcer, the likelihood is that foot will be amputated because the diabetic uh, circulatory system is so, so weakened that it is very difficult for these wounds to heal. They become gangrenous and amputation occurs. Well, this mat signals when an ulcer is imminent and they can take steps to, to reduce the incidence of those ulcers. So it took 10 years to develop this mat and get it through the FDA. 
but I think it's fantastic. I think this this whole movement censors telemedicine, bringing healthcare more in the hands of the consumer, more convenient to the consumer. I think it's great. Well, it's it's interesting. You touched on three issues that one of our guests spoke about that I think is one of the heroines of uh, healthcare. And in Austin, Texas, there's a company called Wellsmith, and what they do is they um, give a variety of sensors that are paid for by employers to the patient, now the consumer, and they engage them with a, a very interesting technology platform that instead of saying, hey, Regina, good that you walk 10,000 steps, they'll say, here's what's going to happen with the neuroplasticity of your brain if you keep that up. Here's what's going to happen with your BMI. Here's what's going to happen with your, um, your, your muscle burn. Here's what's going to happen with your digestive system. Um, your sleep patterns are going to be better. So it's it's not at a girl. It's more like here's your BM. Here's your particular. It's a pat. It's a personal pat on the back, and it's also so. Um, the sensors give about fifty five different data points, and they're reducing diabetes um, by roughly a third for their uh, four clinical trials. That's yeah. fantastic. That's I didn't yeah. know about this company. It's just fantastic. Another movement that I think is great. So when I wrote Who Killed Healthcare, I blame the hospitals, I blame the insurers, I blame the academics, I blame the government. And people said to me, well, what about the doctors? Aren't they at fault? And I said, no, they're the victims. They're not the, the causative agents of all of this. So the Decentralization of healthcare and the reliance on telemedicine puts more and more power into the hands of the doctors, which is where it should be. So I'm a firm believer that if you're running a pharmaceutical company, you ought to know a hell of a lot about pharmaceutical science, that it's not a job for a sales guy, not that those people are great, but pharmaceutical, you really have to know the core science. Same thing with healthcare delivery. I think that uh, the physicians should lead healthcare delivery, and I believe this movement will enable them to do it. There's a, uh, on Yom Kippur, you have sins of commission and sins of omission, and I believe the doctors have sins of omission, but also, I think the big villain that has the biggest sin of omission is the employers that could be funding direct contracting. So there's a new direct contracting movement. There's about 20 million patients that are part of this. Um, Walmart has joined the bandwagon. All the big Silicon Valleys have joined the bandwagon, and they're now um, directly contracting with their local health systems, with their doctors, with their labs, um, and by direct contracting and sidestepping the insurance companies and the PBMs, they're able to get the best prices for their uh, the consumer, the employer, employee, and so they're turning out to be heroes, and they're finding hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, buried treasure in their spend. Yeah, very good point. So the employers, I just published an HBR article about something else the employers can do. So, you know, they spend about a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. on healthcare, but the costs go up much faster than GDP. People's wages have been flattened because 
the employers are foisting more and more of the costs on them while they increase the deductibles. The employers have been non-starters in this whole movement. And it's really surprising they've delegated it, even though healthcare is one of the most important issues for employees and it's such a huge cost driver. So direct contracting is one thing they can do. Um, and it's a very good thing, essentially cutting out a middleman, disintermediating or middlewoman, disintermediating somebody who doesn't add much value or in the case of the BBMs, whose value is totally unknown. So another thing they could do, and that's what this article espouses, is to give their employees much greater choice of insurance options than what they presently do. Most employees have a choice of one or maybe two insurance options. Uh, give them the money that they can use tax-free and have all the options should be Obamacare compatible. So no policy with a $5 million deductible. And if they spend less than what the employer gives them, they can keep the money. You know, I don't understand. What we're talking about now are real solutions that are out in the marketplace for millions of people. But how do these big companies, these big systems, allow you on their board when you're nothing but a troublemaker? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I uh, try not to be. I try to be a member of the team and I think the companies that I was lucky enough to serve on uh, wanted to have genuinely diverse, not just that I'm a woman, but diverse intellectual points of view. So one of them was a company called Cardinal, which grew from about a hundred million to 250 billion while I was on the board, I had very little to do with that growth other than to cheer the strategy that brought it on. But the CEO of that board was a real fan of my ideas of diversity in health insurance. And I think that's one of the reasons he asked me to join. Do you... Um... Are, are there some board stints that you just couldn't believe they asked you because your thinking is so different from theirs? Um, I, I believe it or not, <laughs> uh, I said no more than I said yes. So, there were some companies that, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, I just didn't feel I would be a useful asset to them. Do you do you get um, disappointed when you see, for example, President Biden or elect President elect Biden? He's brought to the VA somebody with zero experience in healthcare, zero experience in the military. He's brought to the head of HNHS, which is um, the largest spend in the federal government by far, somebody who has zero experience running companies, zero experience in healthcare, zero experience. I mean, this these are people who are going to be leading a basically a third of our economy, and they're not. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, not, they're completely out of their uh, swimming lane. It's, um, 
another way to look at those choices. So the HHS guy, the attorney general uh, was say from California was a real advocate for Obamacare and a strong advocate for Biden and Obama. So another way, and yet, as you say, the uh, experience, <laughs> the footsteps, as I call them, are a little lacking. So another way to look at that is who's going to be running the show. Uh, it seems like it's going to be the White House. That, and there are administrations like that where you know, they tell you when it is that you can go take a coffee break, everything comes from the White House. The way I interpret those very strongly partisan appointments, and I'm sure they're great people, but as you say, the resume is kind of baffling for running monster agencies. I assume they've been appointed for their loyalty and their uh, public acceptability, but that the script is going to come out of the White House. And, and here we're supposed to trust the federal government to run health care, you know, as a single payer system. We have the VA to thank for um, a lousy system there. And we're now counting on the government to expand that to all Americans, just to beyond, beyond belief. Yeah. So I think, uh, so what do I know? I'm tenured, so I can make predictions and be wrong, and that's the way it's going to be. I don't think the American public wants Medicare for all. I do think they want universal coverage. And one way to do it is this public option. Uh, the problem with the public option, Ron, and tell me if I'm getting too wonky here, is it's Medicare. Uh, and the problem with Medicare is Medicare has been underpriced for decades. And uh, the Congress loves it because they set the price low. People love Medicare, they love the Congress, but it has a net present value, unfunded liability of at least $36 trillion. So who's gonna pay that? Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. In the Congress, they're fine with it. So we don't want more Medicare. I think what we want is to expand insurance, perhaps by using Medicare's pricing power, but let the private insurers run this expanded system not that I'm in love with the private insurers, but unlike Medicare, they cannot underprice their offerings. They have to price it so that they meet some sort of bottom line, which means that our grandchildren are going to be saved from another tens of trillions of dollars coming down from underfunding Medicare. That we simply don't have. We don't have, and that really is hurting us competitively. It's a tremendous burden on our debt, on our interest rates, on the attractiveness of the dollar. It's a very serious issue. You know, we, um, there's a saying that you get the uh, elected politicians that you deserve. 
Um, we have elected <laughs> in our three biggest cities mayors that have no, never made a payroll. They've never owned a Kool-Aid stand, much less a business. They yet are indefinitely closing businesses by the hundreds in their cities. And um, the ironic thing is they'll probably get reelected again. How do you feel about these large closures and these giant blunt instruments where they're, we're closing entire cities, um, you know, with these yeah. block programs as opposed to surgical programs? It's heartless, isn't it? Um, I, there is a restaurant near where I live, and it's a French bistro, which, needless to say, was never that popular, but it was okay. The owner and manager had just gotten married before COVID. I called him to close the place. I called him. I said, I think I can mobilize customers. He said, no, you can't open it. So these are tragedies that are repeated over and over again for a solution that at least to me is not clear um, that these, uh, these, these restrictions on businesses running themselves, clearly social distancing is worth a shot, wearing a mask is worth a shot, but uh, restrictions on things like restaurants having indoor dining in a place like Massachusetts, where it's not exactly Hawaii or Texas, it's cold. You know, that, uh, it's pretty heartless, pretty heartless. And my, my son works in one of the Harvard hospitals. He said they're at about 20% occupancy for their ICU beds right now. Boston's yeah. not in trouble. Boston, but the, but the headlines are screaming, um, as if it's a, you know, patent place. It's very yeah. dramatic, <laughs> very exciting, very, very nerve-wracking. You do not want to be, you know, eating at a French bistro in Boston or you can get yourself killed, even though the, 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 the rate of infection is at the fatality is ridiculous. So we, we happen to have a governor, Charlie Baker, who uh, rescued Harvard Vanguard, one of the health insurers here from bankruptcy, and who was a VC, uh, very smart. And I think he has the kind of resume run that you're talking about, real businessman, very astute businessman. I think that, I don't know what he thinks, but I would guess that he's very dubious about all these draconian me measures. But because the media is so high on them, he has to go along with them. So Re Reggie, I'm gonna assume that you have pretty wise genes in your gene pool, but I read in your history that your father was a rabbi who fled Russia to land in Nazi Germany just before the Reich, Third Reich was created. What happened there? No, he uh, he had fled Russia a while a while before then, and uh, Jews in Russia. He became a rabbi because whole family um, for long long time were rabbis at a time when rabbis were not ministerial but they were scholars. And he was a scholar, he was a biblical scholar, uh, but he wasn't particularly religious. And the reason he became a rabbi is in Russia at that time, 
that was the only education a Jewish person could get. And so he left Russia as soon as he could, and he went to Germany, and he became a successful businessman there. But, but uh, his whole family, my mother's whole family, they were all killed. My father was a Zionist, and he bought land in Palestine very early on, and that enabled them to escape from Germany in 1939, just, just in the nick of time. So, Reggie, do you speak three languages? You speak Hebrew and speak German and speak uh, English? I do. I do. My mother, my mother, it's very ironic about the German Jews in Israel. There are communities where the street signs are in German. Uh, they were, even though, you know, they, their whole life was destroyed. They had a great loyalty to German culture. And my mother never learned Hebrew. She just detested Israel. So actually, the first language I learned was German. Now, your mother was somewhat of a card shark, wasn't she? Oh, yes, yeah, she was. She was, uh, <laughs> she was. She was tremendous. She was uh, very pretty and laughed a lot. And people thought she was kind of a dizzy blonde. But of course, she was a tremendous card player. <laughs> so they soon learned that don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. I, I suspect you've used some of those guiles yourself in your lifetime. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Never. Never run. <laughs> Well, Reggie, I got to tell you, I got to admit, I'm in love with you. You can tell your husband. My wife doesn't listen to these podcasts, so she'll be okay with that. <laughs> but uh, I'm so delighted to have you on the show. And anytime you want to co-host a show or join the show, you've got an open, golden, fully walk. Just ask me. I'd love to do it. And I'd love to talk more about primary care providers and their, their plight and how I think they're getting out of it. So just ask me, Ron. It's been delightful. You've got it. If people want to find you, how do they identify you on social media? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm reluctantly on Twitter, but I'm mostly on LinkedIn. And then um, if you could fly a banner over America with one important message, what would that be? Love this country. Yeah, I love it. Reggie, thank you again. We'll have you as soon as we can. And I just wish you a good Shabbos and a happy Hanukkah. Same to you. All the best. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.